Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. Nice to have you here. It's going to be hard to beat the last week's spacecraft fire safety episode, but let's let's give it a try. Today, we're starting, a, let's say, a mini-series in the podcast. I'm going to make a group of themed episodes. They will be themed around the experiments that have changed the fire science, which means I'm going to discuss here the most impactful experimental programs we had in the fire science with the scientists who have performed them or ones that are very well informed about the curse of the experiments. We're going to talk about their legacy. We're going to talk about what happened, what led to these experiments, why were they needed, uh, what were the ideas when they were conducted, what questions they tried to ask, and uh, in the end, what did they change overall in the fire science. And today we're starting with the first one. It's on the round-robin part of Dalmarnock Fire Program. For me, it's one of the most influential pieces of research that I've learned during my career, and they and they have really laid a new perspective on using of numerical tools, models, the difference between modeling and model. Something that, that from my own perspective, from my own career, has uh, really changed the landscape of of use of modern tools. The Dalmarnock Fire Program was carried on the supervision of Professor Jose Torero by the University of Edinburgh. And it was obviously much bigger than the part that we're going to touch about uh, today. It was first and foremost motivated by creating more visibility for fire profession, fire engineering profession, by uh, making a documentary, uh, Skyscraper Firefighters, that aired on BBC Two. And that was a major thing to, to produce a large documentary about uh, compartment fires. And that, that goal was certainly achieved. It was also part of a fire grid program, a much larger study. It had massive instrumentation. All of this you can, you can find and read. But here today, I, I would like to focus on one, let's say, little aspect of this experiment. And that was the round robin. Uh, round robin was uh, an attempt to send uh, data to some fire modelers would try and predict what would be the consequences of the fire in the building. Then they've built, burned the fire and then they've compared them. And oh boy, it was interesting to, to look at the data. And that is exactly what we are going to talk about in today. I've invited Professor Guillermo Rain, who was uh, the lead scientist behind a priori, the, the before fire experiment uh, round robin, and Dr. Wolfram Jan, who at that point was leading the post-fire modeling, where they tried to improve the quality of, of modeling and predictions, given the knowledge gained from the experiments. So I hope this will be interesting to you. I've linked the Dalmarnock papers in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about the experiments themselves, the motivation and the other aspects of it, you're very welcome to do that. There are the round-robin a priori, a posteriori papers as well. A lot of a lot of knowledge, a very fundamental research. And now let's hear from the scientists why was it important and why you actually should read them. So yeah, let's spin the intro and let's go. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fireside Show. Today, we're going to try something uh, different. Well, the same thing, but a little different. 
I thought that it could be nice to learn about what made our fire science the thing we have today. And for that, I would love to discuss some of the most famous, most impactful experiments and papers that, that happened over the course of the decades as fire safety engineering was developing. And to start it off, I have one that was certainly impactful for my own career as a CFD engineer. And that is the round-robin part of the Dalmarnock fire experiment. And today I have with me two lead researchers of that task in that big project. First, Professor Guillermo Rain from Imperial College London. Hey, Guillermo, nice to see you here for the fourth time. Thank you, Budge. It's great to be back. I'll, I'll have to buy you like a t-shirt or something for the fifth one, I guess. I would love a t-shirt or a pen or a book or a I don't know. I'll, I'll figure out something. It's, 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 but it's great to, to have you. And Guillermo, you were leading the a priori part of CFZ experiment there. And I also have the head of the a posteriori round-robin part, uh, Dr. Wolfram Jan. Hey, Wolfram. Hey, how are you? Nice to be back. <laughs> nice to be back. Yeah, you also has, have been a guest on, on the show talking about CFD, which perfectly ties to this. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in the previous episode as well. You, if you have not uh, heard the Wolfram's episode, it's very impactful and you should just pause now. Go, I think it was episode 14 or 15. You were a very early adopter of the show. Thank you very much for that. Both of you were. Okay, let's let's jump into the Dalmarnock because there's a lot to, to talk about that. So first question, why the hell such a project happened? How did we end up having this massive set of fire experiments in the residential compartments carried out in... What was the, the grand idea? I know that from the talks we, we had before that Round Robin came to the whole program at some point of, of its development. Let's first talk about why we needed Dalmarnock in the first place. Guillermo, you were there observing it firsthand. Yeah, so Dalmarnock Experiments of 2006 is the brainchild of Professor Jose Torero. He was at the University of Edinburgh at that time. And he convinced the Housing Authority in Glasgow, the Far Brigades, and the TV programmers uh, of Horizon Show, which assigns documentaries, convinced the three of them to have this experiment in a real building, in a real apartment. No, in a, re in a real building, but... It was only two apartments that got two flats that caught mm -hmm. on fire, and he he made this opportunity an incredible and a super exciting opportunity because they, they remain the most densely sensed experiments conducted to date in fire science, and this was done in two thousand six, yeah. and it's not been beaten yet because the amount of sensors of all kinds that were inside those two flats is incredible. Many things happened in Dalmarnock and afterwards, but one, one of them, one of the things that happened, the one that you have invited us to talk about, is the modeling exercise around Dalmarnock. Yep. And at that time, Jose and I were in very active discussions about what is the difference between a model and modeling, right? So we both are scientists and engineers, and we were concerned that if one says, I've validated the model, that doesn't mean that the modeling applied by another person in another context means that the same level of accuracy or precision is, is applied. And we didn't know how to make this point. And I remember we had a meeting in London with our top engineers and top SDS developers. And out of that meeting, I told Jose, look, there is a way that we can address this. We can do a round robin. And at that point, Jose said, what is that? 
and and I explained to him the idea, which I'll I can I guess your audience wants to know as well what's a round robin. Yeah. And a round robin is when you have a task for a group of people, and everybody does the task independently, and then you put all the results together and you compare what the group has done. Right. So the key is that they're independent. It cannot be that I'm looking into who's at the left or who's in front and use that results to guide my. So they are independent. Then you put them all together and you compare them. You do a benchmarking of one to the other. So we said Dalmarnock is going to happen. We tell everybody, all the modelers around the world, what Dalmarnock is going to do. And before we do Dalmarnock or before they see the results, actually, it's more correct to say before they see the results. Mm we tell them to simulate this, this fire, the development of the fire. The way they want it to do, they should simulate this before they see the results. And that's what we call the a priori round robin, mm-hmm. a priori for the Latin of ahead of the event. So before the fire happened, many people around the world try to simulate with different software tools mm-hmm. what would have happened. Then they send us the results. So they, they send us their predictions, and then we send the results. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is what Wolfram led, which was the a posteriori, or the Latin of a, after the which, event. Which was not which a round is, robin, actually. It was just meme. Which was not a round robin, indeed. Good point. What, what, why is that? It was just one one team, well, me and Guillermo, basically. Um, so it was just one team. It wasn't, it wasn't many teams kind of competing to do it. I think there's, well, there have been more attempts of modeling that, but I don't think any of that has been published. I think ours is the only yeah. one that was actually published. In... This is important, Wolfram. This is really important. Why they didn't publish? <laughs> because it, um, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't easy, even knowing what happened, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to match the results. It was very, very hard, actually, to come up. So this, is, this is the key, yeah, Wolfram. Yeah. This is why we did the round robin. This is literally why we yeah. did it, because you go into the literature and the scientific literature and there's this massive filter in the scientific literature that only if you get amazing results, you publish, you submit to journal. Mm. I mean, you have to be out of your mind, really, to submit to a journal an exercise where you prove you are useless at simulating the experiment. However, editor, please, everybody should know how crap I am at modeling. Mm. So that's why in the literature, you only see beautiful examples of CFD or any, it doesn't have to be about CFD. Because this happens to every single discipline, non to engineering. Is you publish only when the results are amazing in your modeling exercise. You don't publish negative research. Negative research doesn't have good press, doesn't create careers, doesn't take the time of editors. So with Realm Robin, what we wanted to say is like, well, a group of people known to the field are going to try to do this. The experiments are amazing and well done. Some of them would not do too well. It will be negative research for them. The other ones hopefully will do well. That will be positive research. Altogether, we think this is something that everybody will want to know about. And that's, and that's what we did. We wanted to, to see the part of a filter that never gets to us in the literature, which is the attempts that failed to simulate what it was attempted to do at the beginning. I think we have to come a little bit back to, to Wojciech's question from the beginning, that why were these experiments done in the first place? It wasn't, it wasn't about modeling in, in the beginning. It was about... Mm-hmm. Somehow to being able to predict the fire based on, because it was all in the context of this fire grid project. Yeah, the big idea was to yep. being able to predict fire development based on sensor data and trying then, once you have the prediction, trying to manage the fire. That was the whole paradigm, I think. And at some point we realized that we need modeling, but we can't do it. And that's basically the ongoing problem. <laughs> it's been... 15 years, and there has been lots of development in, in, in many aspects, but some of the main conclusions remain. We still can't do blind predictions. 
If I ask you to move back in time 15 years ago, what, how did the modeling look back then? I mean, what, what version of what, what version of FDS we even had was, was FDS four? <laughs> I, I did the posteriori modeling with four, and I was criticized for not using five. <laughs> um, so it was, really, <laughs> it was about that time that five appeared. Okay, and a priori was was yeah, it was four, four then. Yeah. One thing, because we just did something that I did it as well, and we should not do the round robin is not about FDS. No. Okay, yeah, it's about CFD. And, and the round robin actually includes at least two zone models. Okay. And this is important. When we invited people to participate, we did not hint it nor impose any model choice. Okay. We said the model that you are comfortable with. What happened at the end is that the brave, I call them the brave because they're very brave. Only the brave, or most of them, chose FDS. Mm -hmm. No one came with the guts doing ANSYS nor Fluent nor Sophie, no, none of these modelers had the guts to, to come with us to the round robin. Only users of FDS and the, and the zone model came with us. Actually, the two models that were used, 100% of the models used in the round robin were by, by NIST, given to humanity for free. Nice. That's, that's powerful. And what was the environment back then? I guess this was quite soon after the World Trade Center papers were published. Also were... This investigation is also something that I need to cover in this series because it was also groundbreaking on its way. And I know it paved the way to multiprocessor FDS and other things that we take for granted today. Like it's obvious they are here, but then it were, it were problems. Well, from, from your experience, how, how did it look back then well, compared to today? Do you mean in, in terms of modeling or generally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of tools of, of availability, of, of solutions, of the best practices. That's a good question. I think there was a little bit of so so there, there were these papers to um, convincingly um, to reproduce the fireball of the of the double F of the World Trade Center. If you remember that? So I think there was a bit of of feeling that as we discussed before, I think that kind of modeling we could model fire. It was possible. We had the model that was FDS. It worked, and actually did work for some some applications. It worked very well. You had, there was quite, quite a bit of validation of the model, so it had been validated, and it worked. So um, I think there was, there was a very positive of, like, feeling that we basically, there was a managed problem in a way. And I think that the big problem is, is actually a difference between, I always say that, and of fire modeling and fire consequence modeling. And I think that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the key here. So you could, back in the days, um, with FDS4, you could very well model the smoke movement if you had mm. the information about the fire, the heat release rate. Okay. Um, and that's, I think, that's the key because that is what they didn't have for the round robin. They didn't have the fire. They had okay. all, the, all the information to create yeah. the fire because we gave them, well, they, the, the monarch testers, I wasn't there at the time. Um, <laughs> I missed them by a week. They gave yeah. them all the information yeah. But the fire development couldn't be done, even with all the information, not blindly. Yeah, but Wolfram, you, you're, just to highlight that this is a, we know this now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. So this, this is, yeah. This is what kept busy with, we published the paper. This is what kept us busy with reviewers, that the reviewers were either saying, this is the best thing that I've read in 10 years. And the other one was saying, this is the worst thing I've read in 10 years. The, our editor was Professor Dougal Drysdale, who, who is known to be tremendously fair and dedicates time to the process. So just to give you an idea, we publish the paper, right? So we get comments and we end up rebutting for twice the length of the paper. So you have the paper, 
which is a big paper. And we there were battles with all the reviewer comments, only half of the reviewers wanted to blend that to twice the paper in thickness. So actually we end up writing more to rebut the reviewers than the paper itself. Yeah, that must have been... And a- I think, um, you know, this, it's been, a, it's been a, I wouldn't say a lifelong struggle, but a little like a career-long struggle is to convince people the problem is not the model, as, as Guillermo said at the beginning. It's about the modeler or the modeling process. FDS is a of CFAS for that matter. They are perfectly well suited for certain purposes, but you have to know which are the you know what they are designed for, and then you can use them. But so when when you criticize the the modeling process, it shouldn't be understood as a critic to or criticizing FDS or whatever other other simulation tool you have. Mm-hmm. It's about the modeling process, and that's actually that what what came out as a result of all this is that we have to be, you know, conscious about that process and where the limitations are. And I think people weren't conscious about it. They didn't know. Okay, so to give, um, the, probably all of people in the audience may hear the word Dalmarnock for, for the first time in the live. So, so let's give them a short introduction to what the fire did look like. Like what's actually the, the, the thing burning in the experiment? Of course, the experiments, it has... Uh, you have to give the credit that it was a much bigger thing. Ron Robin and the, the CFD part is a part of it. And uh, there's a website of the project. There's many papers to be read. There is the documentary TV, which you've mentioned, Guillermo. And I now need to find to link to the show notes. If I find it, it's going to be brilliant. If I cannot find it legally, I'll steal it and make a copy for anyone for the glory of fire science. I, I have a copy in, in CV. Okay. If, yeah. it, if, it, if it's the last resort, I have a copy of it. Fantastic. Uh, I, I have no remorse. Uh, I, I live in Poland. No worries. I, I can steal that. <laughs> Put it in the internet for the for the benefits of fire science. I think it's actually important to do that. Anyway, it was a huge project. But uh, let's talk about the, the part that touched myself, uh, which is the round robin and the a posteriori CFD part, because this we've talked about it for for years about the results of the project. And there's a reason why inviting you here, I I had the CFD part in my mind. I, I think this was something that if if you ask a random fire scientist about Dalmarnock, they would probably refer to this this part of the experiment. Because it, it aged the best of, of all of them for some reason. Now let's go back to I, I've asked you a question. What what was burning? So what was the fire load in the Dalmarnock? So they- the objective of Dalmarnock was to have a real fire, okay. not an experiment in a laboratory with a fake fuel or with a no made-up fuel. It, no crib. This was an attempt to do... I mean, there were already a few experiments of NIST and other people wanted to do one British style, so to speak. And it was a flat, a small flat with two bedrooms, one kitchen and one living room. Remember, the, the Dalmarnock includes two experiments. So I just focus on one, is the same. And most of the action by far was in the living room. The living room had a sofa, uh, had a, two bookshelves, had a table, had a, com- a desk with a computer, with a chair, and it had a little bit of decoration and, mm. and there was a blanket on the sofa. So it just tried to imitate a normal living room of a modern flat. Every single element, except I think the computers, were from IKEA. <laughs> In, and we actually even have the names of IKEA and the year of manufacturing. So it allows some repetibility, so to speak. Okay. Um, and if you see the photos, it looks modern. It looks very IKEA. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, it's absolutely packed of sensors. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were there were sensors for the smoke descent layer with lasers. There were strain gauges in a replica of a stress a steel stress, like in the World Trade Center. There were uh, thermocouple wires in the walls in the center. 
uh, heat flux meters everywhere on the surface. There were cameras, uh, CCTV cameras, there were smoke detectors. It was packed. It was incredible. It was very exciting. You can imagine the amount of data that was produced out of those two experiments of 15 minutes. We still have not processed all the data. It will never be processed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's beautiful. Some, there, there were done some experiments previously to the, to the big tests. Basically, the, 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 the sofa was burned, I think, with the, um, under the hood. Basically to, to... So we, we bought three sofas of from Ikea. One, oh. one each of the flats received a floor. Four, okay. Yeah, it's true. I, this, what happened to the fourth one, Wolfram, is not official. Yeah, one was so I, I don't know what happened. Yeah, so the three we, that I know, one of the sofas was burned in the lab under laboratory conditions. Okay? Okay. No walls, no environments, it was under the hood. And the idea is to measure the heat release rate. Mm -hmm. And we measure the heat release rate and we provide the heat release rate to the round-robin participants. So it's not that they have zero knowledge of what was going to be the fire development. Is that we said in the lab, this is how it burns, free burning, right? No smoke layer built up uh, in the room, no walls, no radiation. And, and the question is, with this information, how do you think it will behave if it were to be in a room? Yeah, but there was a difference, though, because at the, during the tests, um, there was a blanket. So there was a waste basket that, that next to the sofa. That was the ignition source. And the fire should spread to the to the sofa, which it did under the hood. It worked, but it took quite a time. So <laughs> during the experience, to make it a bit faster, I think they put a blanket over the, hanging into the basket and kind of over the, the sofa. So that was kind of And Wolfram spent a significant amount of time simulating this. Yeah, trying to figure it out <laughs> because it, um, that was actually at the end, it was quite important. And so which is, again, one of these things that you wouldn't, think about beforehand that was uh, during the pre-flashover one of the most mm -hmm. important bits of, of information <laughs> and you say well you didn't so the, the round robinus they said well you didn't give us this information well yeah but that's part of the no one knew yeah. that like when you design a building you don't ask where the rug will be lying right no but what well, yeah, this is important the thing is we can tell the story from as he was happening or afterwards, because remember the Wolfram spent half of his PhD doing the posteriori. Yeah. <laughs> so Wolfram is telling you 100% the truth. It took him three years to well, figure it two, out. Two, yeah. two years was trying to, trying to get this published. It was just one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because we met reviewers, opinionated reviewers also with the posteriori. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I spent the better part of a year trying to, to figure out why this was so different from why, did, why it just didn't match. So it took me a year to match this. And at the, at the end, it was as simple as that. It was just a blanket. No, but wait, I, I want to frame this because I know how history can cast this. So it, is, it was the blanket, okay? The blankets happened to be absolutely essential for predicting better the fire. The thing is, this was not known to absolutely anyone. So it's not that we did it on purpose. No. Oh, the secret blanket. No, we have absolutely no idea that we were doing this by putting a blanket. And the second one is, if the blanket changes the results from, I have it here, from 500% wrong to 20% wrong, then we are doomed yeah. in fire modeling. <laughs> so so I, I happen to believe that that's not the case. I think that there are oh. details that matter and there are details that do not matter. And obviously in an immature science like fire science, we have a lot of work to do. But what we should not be doing is, we should not be saying the blanket doesn't matter. That's not true. And we should not say the blanket is the only thing that matters. Because that's not true either. No. Right? So there is a context, and in fire science, we are dealing with such a complex phenomena 
we cannot just focus on one element. Unfortunately, we have to focus on all of them at the same time and decide little by little which ones count and which ones count less. I'm looking at the picture of the room uh, right now in front of my eyes. There's actually a 33 pages long paper about the instrumentation alone, give an impression about uh, what scale of, of, of instrumentation we're talking about. I'm looking at the room. There's uh, there's this uh, couch with a blanket. There's um, a blanket. <laughs> there's the three three wardrobes with some papers on them. There's a computer desk. To actually, there are some chairs, computers, like the random stuff you would find in the in an office. A plant, an IKEA lamp. I had a lamp like this. I confirmed that's IKEA. <laughs> so in, indeed, a very normal uh, space, an office space that that you you would have in a, in a building. Uh, so let, let us go round robin now. What exactly did you give? Everything. To, like, okay, so far we hit release rate, but what else? Uh, so we give them photos of every single one of the items independently and together. Okay. We gave them the, cata- the catalog description of IKEA, because it actually even gives you the materials in IKEA. They mm-hmm. could actually go to their local IKEA if they want and buy the same version of the element if they want. No one did this, but they could. We gave them, we weighed some of the materials. Uh, for example, the sofa, we weighed for sure. Uh, we gave them the heat release rate of the sofa burning the lab. We actually, when we did the experiments, we realized, yeah. we never thought about this, that there was press coverage. We, we didn't think about this for our own robin. And we thought, oops, then some modelers might be um, good with social media, how to speak, and might actually have seen the, the coverage, right? Mm-hmm. Because at that time, we, we, to tell you the truth, we didn't know if it was going to ignite or not. Okay. Obviously, I can tell you that, no, Jose Torreira had done many fires, so it was probably going to ignite. But we just didn't know if it was going to ignite. I mean, it was going to, it was going, it was the fire going to spread across the sofa? So anyway, so because it was press coverage, so we knew there was a fire. So we had to take our copies of the press coverage with some photos of the plume from the outside. And we gave it to everyone. And we say, oh, by the way, and the, and the window, there was two windows. The second window was broken on purpose from the outside, was Jose throwing a stone. <laughs> and we gave them the specific time at which Jose broke the window from the outside. We didn't say what happened to any other window because that was not an intervention, right? So the modelers knew that the fire happened and that the fire developed and there was some plume and that someone from the outside broke a, a second window. But they knew absolutely every, everything else that was inside the room. And then we asked them, do fire modeling of this event and make predictions of the following variables. And we said, well, Average temperature, local temperatures in the third couple locations, smoke descent, heat fluxes, obviously heat release rate. That was the first one. Time to flash over. I think that's it, right, Wolfram? Yeah, I think those were the the main... Because these were the things that we could measure. We didn't ask them to predict anything that we could not measure. Mm -hmm. And we said, just send this file. And when you send the file, only when you send the file, we'll send you the data. Okay, so now uh, going into these predictions, you, you've already tasted a little bit with 500% scatter, but we'll unravel that in a second. It's actually 800. <laughs> Just, yeah. Come on. Okay, nice. Um, so first of all, the fla- flashover, it, it grown, the flashover has happened in this compartment and it was like a fully developed fire that self-extinguished. Did it, was it quenched no, at some friends. point? No, it, it was... It was fire brigade that came down. Okay, fire brigade. We were very nervous at some point, I think. <laughs> yeah, we, we've been there, done that. Uh, fire brigades in, in large fire. Exp- they, they are always becoming nervous at the interesting part for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so let's talk flashover, the predictions of the time of, of flashover. I, I think that it's, for me, myself, having the knowledge I have today in terms of doing full-scale experiments, like full-scale experiments are unpredictable, like absolutely unpredictable. 
uh, especially when you model uh, 382 square meter Bora. But yeah, but Boje, Boje, I have to stop you there. Yeah, because we got this comment very often. Tell me in the literature, scientifically, not opinion, where that is said. But you just, I agree with what you said. Tell me where in the scientific literature there is a statement that can be quantified as saying this person is saying that large-scale experiments cannot be predicted. No, I, there, there, there's none. And I, if you ask me the question five years ago, I would say we have perfect models to predict that. And now after doing like 20 of these, I have no idea. It's so hard to predict. Now, what, what I want to, to say is that the moment, from the moment of flashover to some certain extent of time, it becomes more predictable, you know? Right. Because then you just have all, all the stuff burning. And I think there's less variability because you have, it's essentially energy balance from that point onwards. And to some extent, the intensity of radiation inside the compartment, which probably is affected by many things. But, but from the flashover, it, it, it becomes, to me, more manageable. Nice, then again, if I model my shopping mall and I model a flashover mall, I did not a great job as a fire engineer. So I do not really commercially model this. I don't care about the post-flashover fire when designing my smoke control system because that means I failed as an engineer. So I care about this earlier phase. And now this earlier phase, as you said, a a dish rack can change the the fire behavior and actually build up of the conditions inside the compartment that did lead to flashover. That's an interesting. So this is why my first question is what was uh, the scattering time to flashover because it, in a way... It's an umbrella of all the things that happen as the fire grows to reach a certain certain size. So, so this is why, like my immediate first question, not not temperature deviation, not uh, smoke layer height. A hundred. It went to a hundred to a thousand two hundred. Okay, that's a scatter. And and I want to emphasize this, but you, I mean, obviously you can go back to the paper and see the names of the team members, and the great majority of them are really really well known. These were not Amateus. These, these were people that at that time and now were very famous and people will rely on them to have views, professional views on fire modeling. Obviously, we didn't get the best modelers or the most famous modelers because also I think these people, first, they didn't know us. I mean, they said, Guillermo, who? Who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Right? This guy that just graduated. And also they had an invested interest because we were going to show the results no matter what. Mm-hmm. We, you, I think you mentioned this, we, we are not the first round robin in fire science budget. Mm-hmm. We are the first ones to go to publication. There were at least two attempts before us. The results were never shared with anyone because when the room got together, they were so unhappy with the results that they themselves said, they themselves thought, this will damage the field. We cannot go public with this message. Mm-hmm. And when we did the round robin organization, since the beginning, we said, we are not going to back up. Mm-hmm. Maybe we will not be accepted in journal, but this will go to our repository. This will go to conference. Maybe we are going to share the results of this no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I think that might have made some modelers uncomfortable that they would not be able to create if things go bad. The best round robin we, we have right now is a yearly contest to find the hit release of the Christmas tree. And, uh, and it's fun. And it's, it's fun and there's a lot of scatter. I, I wonder actually if there would be a value of gamification of, of these round robins and maybe just do them more often without without hurting anyone because it helps us understand our, our profession better. So Wolfram, you said, what was this cut from 80 seconds to 12? To well, some didn't, never uh, flashed over. But okay. I think like, one of them. Uh, yeah, um, I think the latest one, I'm just watching, I'm seeing the graph here, is about 800 seconds. So it was between 80 and 800 seconds. That's a massive scatter. 
And the, the flashover is sensitive to the heat fluxes to ground uh, the, the smoke layer high to some extent and let's say flame spread over solid surface. But I, I guess the whole sofa would be under in, in fire at that point. So uh, how would it look for the predictions of the heat fluxes and, and layer? Disaster. So, um, <laughs> I mean, if one goes to the paper, we start with the heat release rate. Okay. The predictions of the heat release rate cover a very wide range of predictions. It's wild. I typically, when I present this, I always say any dynamics possible to the planet Earth mm. are here, predicted. You will have to go to Mars to get a different curve. It's very broad. And then in the middle of it, towards one side, is towards low, there is the experimental data with massive error bars. Mm. Wolfram arrived one week late, so his predictions are not there. My predictions, the predictions of my team, are there. We mm. didn't do well. I just, you just, you just cannot tell exactly who's who. You just know that the authors, all of them had mm. models. We just, on purpose, we didn't link authors and names because then yeah, it yeah. became That's not the point. A, a different game. So what I want to say is that when I say that the models didn't do well, just letting you know that we were there. I was involved personally in this and I didn't do well. Okay. So I feel, mm. I feel that I'm fine. And since then I continue using modeling as an engineer, as a scientist. So it's not that I did this to end a tool of science, quite the opposite. I did this to bring balance to the tool. I bring balance to the force. The force <laughs> was unbalanced, I thought. <laughs> so I, I lost the, the train yeah, of thought. Yeah, the, the layer. Uh, so, so let's talk layer, oh, yeah. layer heights. And, so uh, in the heat release rate, we didn't do well. And everybody knows that if you're not doing very well with the heat release rate, it's not going to get better. <laughs> and, and it is true. It didn't get better. It just started to get worse and worse. The average temperature of a compartment, average of the smoke layer, mm -hmm. didn't do well, but it did as bad as the heat release rate. When you look into the smoke descent layer, Boji, I know you're very interested in the, the descent layer is for how long someone yep. can be inside. It was a disaster. Mm -hmm. Probably <laughs> is the worst of all. Yeah. Okay. It was an absolute random spaghetti plot of throw something at it. It's incredible. That was probably the, the most damaging result that we discovered. It's like such an important variable for life safety, the descent of the smoke layer, and we cannot get it right, or at least we... For multiple reasons, it's not our fault. It's not the model. So, it's sorry. the whole process. The colors on the plots are consistent. Like the green group is the green yeah. group. So I, I, actually, on the plot of heat release rate, there's the green group who did fairly well on predicting heat release rate. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you the story of that one? It's this this down row never ends. So the green team, which I think I remember who they are, but I'm not even convinced, and I lost the email, so I will not be able to tell you exactly. <laughs> but I remember that the green team submit this simulation and. A few days before we close the folder and we say, you cannot submit anything, they send me an email and say, Guillermo, please, please, we take it back. We want to remove the one that I send you and we want to add this new one. And I thought, well, some groups, like actually us, are not submitting one simulation. We are, we are submitting an ensemble saying that anything between these two is possible. And they thought, oh, that's really nice. Yes, and then please add these two. And they wanted to remove the one that they nailed the heat release rate with. The, the green one. Yes. Yeah, okay. So my summary for this is not even when we get it right, we know it. Yeah. That makes it even better. What I wanted to point is that they nailed the heat release rate perfectly, but they were among the worst to predict the layer height. You know? Well, the layer height is not no, the but that, that's, that, 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 that's so fascinating. Like, uh, it's not even about nailing this one parameter, you know, and, and you are sure your simulation is going to be perfect. It's such a conundrum of different physical things happening, flow rates, velocities inside pressures, so many things that affect your flow. Even the like minuscule change in an external wind could turn the simulation around 
most likely, and you would not n- never know in, in, inside of your simulation. So that that's fascinating. And if you obviously, if you didn't nail the layer height, you're never gonna get the temperatures in in the vertical plots of. Your... Well, no, it, it was the other way around. Is they produce the temperatures and then okay, from the from temperature that, the, they the picture the okay okay. Well, some, some people might have done the thing is we didn't say how they have to define this mo- the layer height. We said this is how we measure it. We measure okay. with lasers, and then it was each of the teams to decide. Well, I want to do this with CFAS this way, with FDS this other way. So we, we, we were not constrained. We were not given tiny little details. We were not micromanaging the simulations. We said, this is how we measure, do your best. And they didn't do well. Some of them because of the definition of the layer height, but that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, we cannot go back to people and say, don't worry, I, your building is super safe. I designed myself with FDS and I'm super famous. And, <laughs> and, and don't worry because um, I'm the best at knowing how to define the layer height. Like, that's not the point. The point is, no, it's, it's not how I define it. It has to be how the community thinks is the best way to do it. The collective mind of the fire engineering. And the, uh, the, the last variable that I wanted to talk, which also for me is not that, that huge variable. Like the time to flash over would be important. And from flash over, it, it goes on in, in a very certain way. Then after flash over, your ventilation limited. The size of fire is what it is. The smoke production size is what it is. So in essence, at that point, you should pretty well nail the, the hot layer temperature because that's basically the heat balance equation of your compartment again. And th- there's a massive scatter on the hot layer temperature after flash over as well, because I see groups who uh, n- never went above to 420 degrees and there's a group which had 1200. So th- th- that's a massive scatter in like the, the final temperature, maximum peak temperature, which in essence will be highly related to the damage to the structure of the building. No, more, no longer humans, but, but the structure, right? No, no, absolutely right. And, and we didn't do well um, predicting average temperatures. But when we went into the local ones, okay. it's very important. Dalmarnock had the ability to look into ver- several vertical um, mm-hmm. profiles with thermocouples. We, di- we did even worse. So the scatter is, is gross. <laughs> so we, one of the conclusions of the round robin is we did bad in average predictions, but we did even worse with the local predictions. Uh, and the heat fluxes also fall into the realm of the local ones and didn't do well. Now, all this is really sad, but then Wolfram comes in and, and he was able to improve this tremendously. I mean, he literally turned around everything. Okay, save the day. But of course he did it because Wolfram did not submit his papers to publication until he minimized the errors between his predictions and the experiments because he had access to yeah. the experiments. He knew what happened. So I had, I had all the results and I tried to find the heat release rate that would give me the match between the... Okay. So what we did and after that, actually, and that's the fourth sofa, is that we, there was another one burned afterwards. And I had, I had two sets of experiments for the heat release rate to choose from for my posteriori modeling. And none of them worked. <laughs> Um, and they had quite quite a big scatter as well. I mean, the difference between those two tests in terms of release rate was o- over two hundred percent as well. You mean, Wolfram? You mean the sofas burn outside the flat? Yeah, yeah. in the color measure. Yeah. yeah. So you you so you saying that? And just to re- recasting your question, you are saying we did not measure the heat release rate in the experiment itself no, because we did not have the ability to no. measure. We could not measure heat release rate before flashover. We could measure heat release rate after flashover by assuming that all the oxygen yeah. was consumed and we had uh, flow meters in mm-hmm. through the vents. But until flashover, we didn't know the heat release rate. And Wolfram is saying he needed it, obviously. For the so he went phase. back. 
Louis. Phase, for the growth phase. So he went back to the only two experiments that existed. One I want to highlight. One was official. The other one was no, but the other one was after the unofficial. Tests. So we we did the, the the second one for this posteriori modeling. Perfect. So this way we we went. So it's we not, went okay, and, perfect. So it's not part we of the round robin. And, yeah, yeah. So we did this again. But what, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that the heat release rate of those two experiments, only the sofa burning under the hood, were tremendously different as well. And that's that was when we concluded it was the the blanket that made the difference because it, it kind of accelerated the, the the growth. So and it wasn't just the fuel load of the added blanket; it was the increased growth rate of the of the fire. I, I have to stop you for one second, Wolfram. When you say that the blanket influences it, you meant that the, the growth, the speed to time to reach the flashover. No, no, it was, but the blanket had no Im, the blanket had no impact at post flashover temperatures. No, no, no. The blanket this, had no impact at smoke layer heights. So, so it's important to, to yeah, yeah, yeah. This was all. Let's not give an impression that the the blanket broke the modeling. It, it, it's a tiny variable, yeah. And that was a tiny blanket. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't it's a <laughs> And the thing is, this happens to all of us, right? What takes us the most time is the one that we want to talk about most. The blanket was a big thing for Wolfram, and actually was a breakthrough when when he was yeah. confirmed. And I want to say this is important. He confirmed this scientifically. Yeah. It's not that he had an opinion, which he obviously has it. He scientifically can prove to anyone that wants to listen to him that it was the blanket that offset the growth phase. And the growth phase means that flashover happens later. Mm -hmm. It means that the time of burning is different. I mean, if you don't get the, the, the time to flashover the right, then yeah. everything changes. Yeah, so it's very sensitive to that. Yeah, so we have these two sets of experiments as an input for our model. So now we have, the and none of them work. So we, as I said, we, we started to figure out how to you know, how to model this by comparing to temperatures and came up with a blanket. At, at some point, we found a heat release rate curve that included this blanket, which we didn't have the data for. It was, it was a kind of an, it, it, we just knew that there was a blanket and we recreated this. And then we suddenly were able to, to match temperatures to a very good degree. And by matching means you, you like... So we this is the twenty percent point, the one where you almost got it. Yeah, right? so we did. We we, we matched um, average temperature in time. So we had time temperature curves that matched satisfactorily, <laughs> and mm -hmm. and then we had at certain times where the you know basically we 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 selected certain uh, points in time where the mm -hmm. average temperature in the compartment that we simulated was very close to the one that was measured, and. At those mm -hmm. times, we compared the local temperature distribution in, in height and, and space, basically. And it was consistent. So we had good results, um, obviously within certain ranges, let's say. Um, but we had good, consistent results with that. So again, I, I think this is, is important to say that the model that we used in that case, and in this case was FDS4, once we had the heat release rate and we had mastered that bit, mm -hmm. could actually make good predictions, um, which says, okay, the, the model is not the problem. So we can kind of predict the movement of, of, of hot air and, you know, of gases once we knew what drives them. So, so I guess that, that, that was a relief moment for modelers. Well, that, you think uh, that they'd all be happy, um, but they weren't. Uh, it took us quite, quite a bit of time <laughs> getting this published. Now, looking at the results of, of your posteriori study, uh, which is interesting, I see that the heat release rate is, is a fairly close match. The temperature, I assume that the average layer temperature yeah. is, is pretty close match, at least for the most of the, of the simulated time. 
but individual profiles are, are still like very different and different in a peculiar well, way. That some uh, in some cases, yeah. yeah, in some some of them, especially the ones nearing openings, door doors, yeah. and the windows, where in simulation you would have uh, actually observed two layer behavior, and in measurements, you, yeah. like it seems like a layer and and a strong flow on the on the floor. Insane, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. But he reduced the scatter tremendously. Yeah. I mean, if you mm. see, if you read the two papers together, the improvement is tremendous. And, and, yeah. So it's something that I want to highlight because I know how history is written. Is one of the reasons why we wanted to do the round robin. My main objective, actually, is something that is modern now. Mm. You know, artificial intelligence. Everybody's talking about artificial yeah. intelligence, not in far science everywhere. And that they say they have a replication crisis, right? That no one, most people, cannot replicate the studies of the other. <laughs> Well, I had a replication crisis of my own. Hmm. When I was studying CFD, farm modeling, I thought I could not replicate most of the results that I was seeing from colleagues in their in papers. In papers, this is very important. Hmm. No, I, I was seeing these beautiful papers with these beautiful predictions of the experiment. And I was trying myself and it was crap. So when I was, I was obviously telling to myself, Guillermo, that's because you're a crap modeler. And, and then when I was talking to some people, some people said, actually, yes, I confirmed this. It's because you're a crap model, Guillermo. I thought, I thought, are you sure? Are you sure? Because how come all these beautiful papers are published and so few people can replicate the results? So I do think at that time that we had a replication crisis as well. And I wanted the round robin of farm modeling to, to show to everybody that we do have a crisis. And it's not that we as independently are crap modelers, it's that Far modeling is even harder than far science because you, you need to master far science in order to master far modeling. And far science is a mature field that is just developing a few decades ago. And far modeling, although it's an absolutely essential tool that everybody should be embracing, is just not the panacea. It's yeah. not just a, a magic ball that we have. We touch a bottom and it gives you results. The results look amazing. But that doesn't mean always that the results are amazing. And, and Dalmer Lock papers were probably the first ones who shown that on a plate. Look at this scatter and tell me it's otherwise. Like it's so obvious looking at the spaghetti plots yeah. that that uh, you are just right. And I have this experience from the other side, from trying to make my experiments as high fidelity as well controlled as I can, and then replicate them with CFD. And I absolutely unable to do that. Like with uh, with colleagues from Ulysses Forschungszentrum, they were trying to match visibility in smoke with a very highly controlled experiment of N-heptane in a very specific ten by ten by four meter tall room. And I I have good experience. It's it's one of the most repeatable experiment. Like I can match the temperatures to like five degrees Celsius experimentally doing the tests here and in Germany. This is how repeatable the test is. I've done it tens of times. And they are unable to model it. They, they get the, the, the error in visibility 500%. Modest error yeah. of the most important variable we use for the design. Uh, there, there are people who are trying to model simple heat transfer even. And they, they're getting errors of 100% because when you really, really want to solve a heat transfer on a vertical uh, boundary, and you stop using a nusselt number of whatever, 25 or... Well, sorry, the, the heat transfer coefficient based on whatever you you have, but really determine what's the value of heat transfer coefficient. Here you yeah. go. Scatter of 300%. The more precise you go with modeling, the, the harder it is to really nail it, right? 
Yeah, but I think that that's that's the the the, 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 the good bit because that that's actually actually the model and that that has been improving. Yeah. So I think there's definitely yeah, you know you go towards something. That's the true. other yeah. bit, there's some intrinsic problem with modeling because you don't. I mean, there's some bits you can't predict basically, and you have to. I think you have to to separate that and clearly. So this is you know the the, the fire models are very very good these days, but they're still. Lots of room for improvement, and that's what okay. But the input is still, and, the input you know, is still bullshit. To make it better, but <laughs> but there's another bit that that doesn't even depend on that. It's just that we don't know what the heat release rate will be blindly beforehand. So and, and we have to somehow come up with a way to model that, and and that will influence the results. And I think you have to be very um, conscious about that. That you, it's not even heat release rate only. There, there's many parameters: suit yields, yeah. Yeah, but this is this is becoming therapeutic for me. So the comment about the heat release rate is 100% true, right? If we don't know the heat release rate, we are in trouble. Yeah. And this was one of the main arguments of some of the reviewers that we have to go through over months and months of time. And at the end, we said, of course, we, we I mean, actually, Dalmar no Ground Robin shows this, that if you don't get the heat release rate right, yeah. then you are losing tremendous amount of ground to do predictions of anything else. But there is absolutely no study in the whole literature where this is shown or said. Yeah. So this is one of the things where we scientists, uh, when we have a coffee, we are mm -hmm. meeting in the lunch of the conference, we all are in agreement. But when it's time to go public to humanity, then absolute mm -hmm. silence, right? It becomes like this yeah. deep secret. If you don't have the hit release rate, you cannot predict. It's like... Tell them. They need to know. You know, there is a built environment where people live, where the buildings are done with people. Right? So yeah. we tell to we tell this reviewer, at some point we I will publish the rebuttals. I said, of course it's true, and you can now cite this paper to show scientifically that it's true. In the meantime, no one could cite anything. Can, about can it. I tell an anecdote that happened to me um, um with the round robin paper? So I we're hired as a, as an expert in a in a trial. So we did some fire model. It was about showing a timeline in a fire that happened. And it was there was smoke seen at some point in a camera. And we had to basically come up with the with time that the fire started or or, or, or reached a certain um so it was it was basically more, we, we had a very good idea of what happened. It was, you know, it was basically smoke movement. So we, we were quite confident we could do that very well. So in the trial, so I presented my, my results and, and you know very confidently. So the, the lawyer, no idea about fire, no, you know, and she used the round robin paper against me. She said, "You said you can't." How dare you use my own spells yeah, against I, I me? It was amazing. I, I, I wanted to congratulate <laughs> her because you know she, she used my paper to 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 <laughs> to invalidate my 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 expert. Which I mean, from it was very very well played. Obviously, the, my answer was, you know, in this case, I knew what happened. I knew the heat release rate, and I just was modeling the, the result. So it's still, yeah. but you know, the, the, the fact that she um, had researched that and, and had, you know, had found me saying that a small victory, yeah, right? I, I think it was amazing. So, so we are nearing the the end of the episode. So probably the, the most important question: what what was the lessons for you? Like, how did it change you as a scientist, Guillermo? You go first. Yeah, it had massive effect on me. In a way, very extremely positive. So yeah. first, it made me, it made my profile visible, because so many people had strong opinions about the results. Half okay. of them hated it, half of them loved it. It was one of these topics that you go into a room and the room is not the same afterwards. 
Mm. I had to discuss one-on-one these results with many known people, and that helped me know them and know their views, which is mm. something that otherwise people will have to spend years and years. Uh, it gave me confidence of the things that I can predict, with, that, that I can expect, and that the group, my, my group can expect from modeling, not just farm modeling, but modeling in, in general. For example, uncertainty became very important for us, for the, my whole career. Not, not only experimental uncertainty, but the modeling uncertainty. The fact that there are some parameters that we don't know, that, and that it creates uncertainty in your predictions. And since then, in most papers that I can remember, I hope, or we have always had uncertainty in the modeling and uncertainty in the experiments, especially when we compare the two of them, right? Because we aim for the intersection of the two. We, we just don't have a model, one simulation. And also another thing that we embrace with Wolfram actually as well is the value of ensemble. It's not just as we have one simulation, it's that we have a group of simulations and we say in between, most things will be valid because we are just not sure of what, what would happen, right? And this is something that the word ensemble, the first time that is used is in, in Wolfram's thesis, I believe. Before we had the concept, but we don't have the term. So then we call it ensemble since then. And and your view on engineering uh, through the through the glass of, of Dalmernock, through the filter of Dalmernock, how, how did you view the fire engineering afterwards, in which the modeling is such a profound part of it? I don't think it changed. What it, it created, it created a different discussion. You could see discussions where people were saying, authorities and other experts and forensic trials like Wolfram, where suddenly the value of modeling was discussed as opposed to be taken as no, um, the top of the science have spoken as, look, we have this paper here. What, what do you think of this? So it created more discussions. I don't think it changed. Modeling re- continued developing tremendously. Uh, maybe maybe we help a, t- let it, a, a little bit with a grain of salt to make it more mature, more, more, more professional. No, what I said before is we thought we wanted to bring balance to the force. Uh, CFD modeling is a force, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's one of the three forces of science. So maybe it was a little bit unbalanced, I think, in, in the, in, at the beginning of the century. And maybe Dalmarnock helped a tiny little bit to bring balance to the force. And for you, Wolfram, how did it change you? Is your PhD thesis so changed you from master to doctor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it pretty, pretty much the same as, as Guillermo. Um, I think, you know, the round rolling per se was a bit of a curse and a blessing at the same time. So um, it brought a lot of problems um, with people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you were, uh, it was always perceived as an attack to the software, um, which it uh-huh. wasn't. And it, it, it it's, wasn't, taken, yeah. it's, it's still taking me quite an effort to convince people that I'm not criticizing the tool, I'm criticizing the use of it. So that's, yeah, that, I think, and I think that's, that's the main takeaway for me is that you have to, to separate these two things. Um, these are tremendously valuable tools and they can be used if used properly, if used by people who know what they're doing, by people who know their limitations. And I think that's very important um, to, to know the limitations and you know, know where to apply them and where to go a different path. And, and now talking about this over a decade after it happened, I think 15 year, more than 15 years since the experiments, it, it must be quite fun. It's still discussed. It still lives on. It's still... I saw you, Guillermo. You, I think you have the like, uh, presentation this year about Dalmarnock somewhere. So <coughs> it's not a legacy that, part on the shelf. It's still alive in the community. It's, it's, now, let me tell you this. It's alive. So last week, I gave a talk about Dalmarnock to the Institution really? of Mechanical Engineers here in, in London. Now, it's, true, it's not that they came to me and they said, super famous Dalmarnock, speak about it. Uh, they said, do you, do you have anything to say? And I said, yes, I have Dalmarnock. And they say... 
you have what? <laughs> I said, well, let me give the talk. And then, you know what? It created a fantastic discussion. So this is, this is 15 years old and it created a fantastic discussion. I, in the room, only like three people knew about Dalmarnock. Okay. The rest, the, the 20 others were like, wow, amazing, really? And, you know, Wolfram is absolutely right. We made a lot of enemies, actually, unfortunately, in the moment. I think that some, most of them did peace with us at the end. We made peace with them. But in that room, there was no controversy. In that room, when I presented this last month, everybody was like, of course. Oh, finally, someone says this. Well, no, oh, great. I'm going to take this to my team. Right? It was all very positive, very constructive. We didn't get in any of the Green. aggressive response that we got. Well, it is important, right? Because I was a very young academic at that time and Wolfram was doing his PhD. Mm. So you don't, want, you don't want to be the center of a storm yeah. when you are in, in such a early stages right. of your career. <laughs> and Wolfram's paper, a posteriori, was rejected from journal mm. once or and twice. I, right? Yeah, yeah. And I had, yeah. I had this previous and we had this one paper where we used Dalmarnock data to assess the parameters of the of FDS model. And I presented that as, at IFSS and the FDS developers were in the in the audience. And I, it was my first, it was the first half year of my PhD. I didn't know much about anything. And yeah, I had to confront them. And it was a traumatic experience, I must say. But yeah. As, as we are fire engineers and our job is to predict the uncertain future from very uncertain data point, I, I hereby predict that as we refresh this piece of, of literature on the on the shelf, I wonder who's going to be the first to publish AI uh, predictions on Dalmer oh. data. That, that could that that could be interesting. Uh, that, I have my hands. Uh, <laughs> if I had to bet money, I, there's one group I would bet on. <laughs> but why, Boje? Boje, that's no, you can't. You have to do it ahead of time. So what I would like is artificial intelligence people to predict an experiment before we do it. Just. Blind if you can find me, an actual yeah, blind prediction. Because artificial intelligence are trained on purpose against the result. Of course, they get it right. If you find me five groups of AI who would like to do that, or ten <laughs> groups of CFD engineers who would be willing to yes. submit their results, I have a place. I'll find funds and I'll do. But it. I, I'll, I'll do the just experiment. Please don't make me review that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Now, well, friend, you will be co-author. You're okay? a professor now. You can send us your PhD <laughs> students. That's, that's the whole point. And guys, for, for the very, very last thing, in uh, some years ago, 2019 or 2020, I think that was, um, in the midst of pandemic, there was a CFP Europe conference in which we've played a trivia game. And there was a question in the trivia. In 2006, the University of Edinburgh has conducted a series of fire experiments that forever changed our understanding and trust in safety analysis of fire safety. The, form, <laughs> the profound conclusions were related to the scatter of numerical predictions of multiple engineering teams. The question now, what is the name of the Glasgow district that gave name to this program? And the, the, there were answers, which are Pollock Shields, Drumchapel, Woodside and Dalmarnock. And the uh, 60% of the responders got it correct. So I hope after this episode uh, that would go to 90-something. And they could spell it and pronounce it properly, you think? <laughs> uh, if, if you want more funny things about the trivia, we also ask how much the SFP handbook weighs, which I awesome. saw behind Wolfram just a few seconds oh, yeah. ago. And just <laughs> and that, that oh. actually is 7.57 kilogram and uh, only two people got it correct. So, you have to do this trivia again. That sounds like fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I, I think Sorry, can I add one comment that you might you can edit it in and out if you want? It's, it's something that okay. So I told you the difference between models and modeling for yeah. us was really really important. 
Uh, this has had been mentioned before. This was mentioned pejorative as an engineer. I don't like that mm. as user effects, right? So you have the model, and anything that is screw up is always the fault of the user, right? Mm-hmm. So typically, mathematicians say, "Oh, that's not my fault. That's the fault of the user." But as an engineer, engineering cannot happen without the user, right? Mm. So I, I, that's why I prefer instead of talking about user effects pejoratively as the people who come to screw up the beauty of the model. I prefer to say, well, there is models, which are mathematically mostly, and then there is modeling, which is engineering, which is not only science, it's also art and actually protects people from fire. This is something important for me because we, we, I discussed that tremendously after the round robin when it went public. People were saying, Guillermo, you just published a paper on user effects. I was like, tell me that again. What, what, do, you mean? what do you mean user effects? So it's that. Yeah, beautiful. That, that's a great, great uh, final thought in, in this episode. Ah, I, I love this series. I'm going to do more of that. Actually, okay, guys, thank you so much for uh, spending an hour an hour with me. It's a huge pleasure. Thanks thanks again, and, and see you around, guys. Thank you, Boje. Thank you. Great to see you, Wolfram. Thank you, And that's it for the first episode in the miniseries, The Experiments That Changed the Fire Science. I hope you've enjoyed that. Tell me if you like the format. Tell me if you would like to hear more about these experiments and the this research. Maybe you have ideas which to cover next. Actually, some of them are already in production. So so I, I guess if you'll guess up what's the next step for this series. I hope that I'll get some nice recommendations from you and I'm more than eager to continue this series because I absolutely love learning about the experiments and how the landscape of fire science has changed over the years. This is probably the coolest part of the podcast. Well, second to spacecraft fire safety, that is for sure. So that that will be it. I, I won't prolong this uh, much because it was a lengthy episode anyway. Just one announcement for, as mentioned before, I'm trying to make an questions and answers episodes, Q&As, and they will air monthly on at the end of the month. Uh, you can submit your questions either through emails or through the SpeakPipe add-on on the Website, please use them, ask questions about the podcast episodes, about fire science, about meaning of life, whatever you like. And I'll try to answer them as well as I can in the monthly Q&A episode. I guess that there's going to be fun. I already had three or four really interesting questions. So the the first one is, is looking uh, promising. I Please don't make me speak about meaningless stuff. Ask questions so I can answer them. So that's it for today. See you here next Wednesday. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.